0: is brought to you by VPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. This is PX55. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm here with my colleague Peter Jewell. Hello Jess. Our esteemed guest for today is Sophie Jordan from Sophie Jordan Consulting. Welcome Sophie. Thank you. Now Sophie has a very varied range of experience having worked in both the public and private sector including Collie, City of Stonington, Hassel Architects, and now she's been running Sophie Jordan Consulting for over seven years. She works on a range of projects including apartments, aged care, licensed venues, offices and also regularly gives expert evidence in court and the tribunal. Now Sophie is there anything you want to add to that? Have I missed anything?
2: No, no, I don't think you've missed it. anything at all. That was a, I wish I could summarise my career <laughs> in such a short way.
0: <laughs> now in in typical um, Peter Jewell fashion, he's uh, he's
2: he's come up with a poem that he would like you to read. And this is interesting because somehow, even though uh, Peter and I have had small conversations, he's managed to find a poem that really reflects my career both in the past and current. So I was happy to read it on that basis. Do you want to sing it? No, no, No. Just absolutely saying. not. Jess, <laughs>
1: it's not to be sung, it's to be read. It's to
2: be read. It's very serious. Let others do as they will. I am who I am. At any rate, I'll walk the way that I make my own.
1: By Nishata Kitaro. Thank you, Sophie. Now, can you tell our listeners how you got into planning?
2: Sure. Uh, Interestingly, I had a really, um, I would say, significant passion to be an architect uh, from a fairly young age. I have a nine-year-old daughter at the moment and I'm quite positive I was wanting to be an architect from from her age uh, onwards. Worked really, really hard, uh, missed out in year 12 by two marks to get into architecture thought it would be really straightforward if I just did uh, town planning at Melbourne Uni and then I'd be able to transfer. Easy. So I did 12 months of being a pla- in the planning course and watched the architects uh, learn and, and grow in that sort of creative space. And I realised that I'm not a highly creative person. I'm very good at process and detail and uh, functionality
1: that's a very honest thing to say sophie because one thing that you ask many many people are you a creative person yeah. <laughs> and most people will say i'm very creative but for to, to hear someone say uh, you know your limitations
2: and i think i have a great appreciation of art and architecture mm-hmm. and i i studied art in year 12 i, I absolutely love studying art Mm. and i love the built environment i just know that i couldn't come up with that idea myself Mm. so in that way planning seemed like quite a nice fit you know it allowed me to work with architecture and with design and but not actually be the person that that comes up with the ideas Um, so i finished the course decided i'd uh get a little bit of Work experience to just check out. It's what I actually wanted to do, and um, goodness me, that was uh, twenty five, twenty six years later. Not intentional. And interestingly, if I won Tats Lotto on Saturday, I'd probably go back and study architecture.
1: Mm, that's
2: nice.
1: Uh, how does running your own business compare to the other roles you've had, um, and what's the biggest challenge running you running your own show?
2: Um, well, I think. It's probably worth saying that the reason I started my own practice was uh, for family reasons. I wanted to be there uh, at the school gate for my daughter at 3 p.m. So I had a particular reason to do it. However, it's probably been the most challenging role as a a professional role that I've ever had. Um, I, I I have no one else to rely on to seek advice from, ask questions of, double-check things, cry on their shoulder, whatever it might be. It's all up to me. And it's the one role that I think um, has actually made me a a better planner, a better professional, because I've had to be so um, self-aware and I've had to back myself.
1: Self-reliant?
2: Very self-reliant, absolutely. And I've had to sit back and think... You know, I can't I can't go and ask somebody in the office how did they do that last week, or can I see an example of something you worked on that was similar? I don't have that opportunity. And you have to be across every single data. That's right, every single, application. every single one. And and I made a decision early on that the offer that I would provide would be that um, intimate service, mm-hmm. and that means I can't take on that many projects in order to do, as you just said, Jess. Mm-hmm be across every single detail but I'm, I really believe that has made me a better professional um, much more so than working in a local government where you had a host of people to support you and back you and, and deal with issues or mistakes you might have made um, and more so than working in a large organisation again where you have the support of other directors or other staff members. Yeah. I don't have that
1: and what role do you see in the planning ECHO sphere for small firms?
2: Really important role, I think. Um, a lot of my clients have come to me because they've been feeling like they, they weren't given the love um, from some of the larger organisations and really want a much a closer relationship with their professional services team. And. So I think that small consultancies and sole practitioners can provide that.
1: Do you set boundaries? I mean, I, I have clients room me on the weekend mm. and late at night, I hope you don't mind, I, I've yeah. got a question or emails. How do you set boundaries? How do you say, no, That's the fence is there?
2: I, that's a, actually a really great question for anyone, I think, in a, in a um, professional services role. Uh, particularly someone where the buck stops with you, Um, I don't take calls on the weekend unless it was something really special or urgent or kind of just had to be done. Uh, And if I don't answer that phone, if it rings and I think I just can't do that now, I just can't face that now, or I don't have time for that now, and it's technically after hours, I just make a pact with myself that that's the first phone call I return in the morning. but I do find there's a lot of clients that will exploit that mm. as much as possible. If you if you show that you're working at night by sending an email, which you're just doing for your own convenience, suddenly that's it, the door's open. It's a very difficult um, balance to achieve. What, um, what
0: kind of projects are you most passionate about?
2: I love doing uh, aged care work. I have a very strong... Uh, um, belief that our elderly citizens deserve uh, good quality um, well located housing in the last stages of their life so I really love working on those projects and I do believe that there's very seldom is it profit driven it 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 has a a good heart to it so that's probably one of my favorite areas of planning work. Is that the biggest um,
0: client base I guess you have in the aged care? No not really
2: Um, I have one very large um, aged care provider client uh, that i do a lot of work for but it would probably represent maybe about a third of my application works a decent proportion but not 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 more than that um, and i've recently been doing some work with uh, educational institutions and i really love that as well i, I love working on something that has um, an important role or place in our urban environment and it needs to make a better contribution and connection to the broader community and i feel i've got a chance to help that along
0: and i think they're really good they're really good projects and really good clients because you actually see being built, yes, and you see them change over time. They're usually yes. quite long-term projects, which I think is very valuable, not just from a um, from a client perspective, but also just from a personal perspective. Yes, and what you get out of that,
2: so people yeah. benefit from yeah. that as well, 100%. as opposed to a permit that you might get for a residential apartment building, mm. and you think, oh yeah, I didn't think I'd get that through, but then it expires two years later, and no one's built it. Exactly. So uh, I agree. There's definitely a um, you, you see it all the way through the stages. Mm.
1: Sophie, we've talked about client relationships and uh, what about your relationship with planning authorities? You've worked in councils yes. and you've worked for large firms and how do you frame your rela- how do you approach your relationship with local local government or state government or I, planning authorities in general?
2: Of, of any type? I, I think having worked in local government, it actually gives you the, the best Window or best understanding to what it's like to sit there having people ring you all day long, hammering you.
1: You see, this is, Sophie, you've re- Jess has never worked in local government. Oh. I tell her she oh. should do her time.
2: I actually think every planner should work in some form of government position.
1: Jess, you've got to leave I, your I flash worked, for That will be unpopular.
2: <laughs> I worked at state government. Well, I think, I think any form of government position... Local government I see as being on sort of the front line. It's kind of in the trenches and state government and other um, government authorities have that one step away from that front line. Um, but the, the purpose is still the same, and that is to advance public policy or yeah. advance the planning scheme. But in local government, you know, uh, and when I started at Stonington as a graduate planner, you get phone calls from objectors who hate you, phone calls from the permit applicant who hate you, <laughs> um, phone calls from councilors that wonder why you haven't done what they thought they wanted you to do, all sorts of pressures on you. None of it very positive, um, none of it really very focused on a on a, an outcome that everyone's happy with. It's all about making you do something that they want. Um, and so, therefore, as a consultant, I even though that was many years ago I was in that role I feel I can genuinely understand where they're coming at I know that the traffic department takes forever to get comments through and it's Mm. not their fault Mm. so um, I guess going back to your question my approach is to um, I won't say try and make friends with them but but be very clear that I understand the position they're, they're in I appreciate the number of Um, pressures on them in their decision making process and all I ask of them is that they communicate with me and that they can be as efficient as possible in that process Um, when those two things fall down I I get pretty upset about that situation particularly the communication side of it but I'm a big believer that um, you never know when you're going to come across someone again Mm -hmm. in business So don't burn any bridges. You're not a table thumper. That's I'm not. (laughs) And and don't um, always treat people with respect. Um, You don't know what they're dealing with within their workplace and within the the political framework that they have to make a decision. Also in their
1: personal lives too. Mm.
2: And then their personal
1: lives. People are very complex creatures. So Um, is planning more art than science? Ah. This is a sort of (laughs) philosophical question, listeners, but. Art or science?
2: Well, I think that without wanting to sit on the fence, I think it's a bit of both. I mm, think that there is... Sounds like
1: fence sitting to me, Jess. <laughs> that's, that's a very unsatisfactory answer. I
2: Sophie, think it is should... planning more
1: art than science? I
2: think it should be more of an art... Mm. But I think it's become more of a science. So I think that the focus on planning has been far less about um, net community benefit, which is much more of an art, and much more about the height of a windowsill and uh, the dimension of a crossover. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I honestly don't think when we're dealing with people's um, working, living, shopping environments, it could ever be a science. Human beings don't. ...work and live the way we sort of predict they will mm. to, the, to the full extent. And therefore I think it's much more about an art. And it should be adaptable like art is.
0: And our cities should be artwork. They shouldn't be... Yes. ...these black I take a
1: country view. Okay. Uh, go for because it. Uh, because <laughs> I, I think we can be all what we think we know what people like. Yes. We think we know what situations and that reflects our bias. Yes, that reflects our upbringing or our culture, and I think, as Aristotle said, you need you need people you need different types of people to make a city.
2: Yes, and I suspect
1: that that's not the case. I think we, people like us, you know that term. Yes, I think that is a lot of the planning-driven agenda.
2: Oh, I would agree so, with that.
1: But on the science thing, and we're interviewing Sophie, not me, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think science and technology can inform a lot more of our decision-making.
2: I, I would agree with you there. Um, I'm not sure we're there yet. I'm not sure we're using science and technology within our urban environment uh, to the, the, I was going to say, the full extent to its to achieve or to make the most of the benefits that science and technology can give us in our daily lives. I think some of our transport systems are starting to tap into that and quite effectively. And it's interesting how quick uh, our population are to, ad- to take on and adopt some of those technologies, but I don't think we're using it in other areas to its full extent. And science and data are very different.
1: They are, but, uh, you know, you can predict health... Problems by people's Google searches, so people mm. start saying, oh, "You know, what's the symptoms of this?" You've got an outbreak. Yes. So you can predict that much quicker than if you got surveys or the clinics. So there's there's a whole lot of sort of um, like a beehive sort of uh, things that you can recognise happening.
2: I think that statistical research has a big role to play. In managing our urban environments and maybe we don't use the statistics available to us to the proper extent Mm. but you know we've started to do it when it comes to housing and population growth but have we done it properly when it comes to employment and uh, changing employment sectors and how we deal with that in terms of land use planning Um, uh, but that's data.
0: data And that's, that, I think that's a little bit like the group neighborlytics. I think that's what they're starting to look at is how we can use that data. So how do you experience a place? How do you get that data to actually inform planning policy and planning decisions? Yes. So I think that's sort of an emerging space. Hmm. Uh, the, yeah. And it,
1: it leads into the next question, Sophie, that within town planning, there are many different situational roles for practitioners. Yes. Uh, there's the inner city planning, which you do a lot of. Yes. Uh, you know, you, uh, but there's also urban manage, and in, in those inner city areas, it's more about managing change, do you think, rather than creating new places?
2: Um, I, I would agree with you that in an urban or, or established urban areas, there's less about that grassroots planning, you know, where do I... The road network, the it's not, layout... It's not
1: town planning in the sense You're not of planning
2: a town. No. No. Um, I still think that even in very built up areas, there's opportunities for establishing, you know, new uh, areas of open space, where are they appropriate located, creating civic precincts. We've seen the construction of new high schools within inner Melbourne, the placement of those high schools, um, local services, both health and community services. All of that is real planning Mm. that still happens in an urban environment in a strategic planning sense. But I think statutory planning in built up areas is very much about urban management. I would agree with you. I think that some parts of inner Melbourne, you know, whether that be something such as Fisherman's Bend or whether that be parts of Collingwood that are changing quite rapidly into residential areas from once industrial precincts, there is an opportunity for some real grassroots town planning to happen. Mm. Um, But you know
1: i suppose there's many tribes in the planning world there are and town planners in the pure sense probably exist you do a lot of that jess and the outer new areas but uh, but a lot of planning is managing established areas. managing change
0: yeah do we need to change our title is that where
1: you're getting... I, sorry, that's a clumsy... You've picked it, Yes, yeah. That's what I was trying <laughs> to get to, So
0: We've been so, working together for too long, Peter. So, Read your mind.
1: Well, that's right. Well, so it's <laughs> like some people, you know, when I was in France... Yes. ...and I explained what I what, what i was studying, they said, oh, you're an urbanist. Yes. And, uh, but we don't have a title like that
2: no and and it's interesting because i find sometimes i can get caught up in the process of managing relationships between neighbors and managing um change in a very small space and that's not really what urban planning should be about um it should always no matter whether the project is you know extension to someone's house or a small unit development there should always be an element of sitting back and saying, does this fit with where we're wanting this suburb to go? And maybe that doesn't happen enough. Um, I, I still think that urban planning is a good fit for the majority of work we do. But I think people working on the growth areas of Melbourne, um, maybe they're urban strategists.
1: Fair, fair Jess, you yeah, think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, planning is a very contested space. I mean yes. you, you said... We need to work out whether this fits in with this neighborhood. But a lot of forces in planning are very conservative. Yes. I'm talking about the, the council strategies and the state government policies and they are restrictive and there needs to be a pushback to be challenged. Do you think do you think there should be more contested ideas in the planning world? Not just in Melbourne, but we're talking to an international audience.
2: Yes. You know, what I find very interesting is when you read the um, you know MSS or some of the local policies of different planning schemes within whether that be all the inner ring councils or you do it for all of the middle ring councils or the councils next to one another and they all kind of say the same thing.
1: That's cut, the old cut and paste. I mean, who could blame them? I'm, I'm guilty of that many times.
2: It's a <laughs> lot of, you know... Yes, we accept this population growth. Yes, we accept change is required. However... However, mm. only, only providing it accords with the established neighbourhood character and doesn't impact on people's existing amenity. So there's always a um, but. A- and I think that the um, but creates a very conservative mindset in the decision-maker in the community that don't necessarily understand town planning, but they come in contact with it when their next door neighbour wants to do something. And everybody thinks that it's about um, minimising change and difference. When in fact, planning should be much more about promoting and encouraging evolution of our living spaces and doing so in a way that's inclusive and progressive.
1: Mm. I think a lot of the controls are very timid If you look back, Sophie, 20 years ago, what was outrageous then is commonplace now. Yes. In terms of the built form and the built form expectations. Yes. So uh, will we be viewed in 20 years time as being timid, do you think?
2: I look at some buildings that I, some projects that I worked on, you know, 10, 15 years ago and think, gee, it's a shame they didn't get an extra couple of levels there. But back then, when it was approved, that would have just been horrendous.
1: Mm. So it's it's lost opportunities for housing. I think there are lost opportunities, yeah. But the the outsiders always suffer.
2: I think that we, um, in many respects, we are not making the most of some amazing jewels within our our inner urban environment we're being very timid with what we allow because we we can't possibly imagine that level of change happening but I suspect if if that was to occur and we move forward another 10 years everything around it will then look exactly the same
0: so obviously, um, over the years in planning, we all build up different attitudes and different prejudices about certain things. How do you work with those? How do you challenge yourself with the prejudices that you may have developed over your career?
2: Uh, very uh, Probably only over the last few years, I've genuinely said to myself, you know, at the start of a new project, mm-hmm. would I want to live next to this? Would I be happy with this if it was in my neighbourhood? Um, So I think really in the past I haven't done that and now I start to really challenge myself by saying, OK, well, this is in a suburban location I don't live in or a growth area that I'm not part of, but would I be happy to be there? And I do think that... um, consultant planners particularly should do that when they're reviewing a a new design or a new project or or something from the beginning
0: and actually going out on site and standing in the the standing in the space space and looking up and saying is this going to be acceptable is this really that is something that we don't do a lot of the time
2: these days not acceptable from the perspective of oh but i wouldn't want that much change happening next to me but about actually saying, has this thought through the context properly? Mm. Um, And I think in a way that helps to break down some of the... You know, it's very easy to look at something on paper and just go, oh, yeah, you know, it's Mm. inner urban. How ridiculous that someone would have an issue with that. Mm. You go out on site, you try and put yourself in the shoes of the adjacent property owner. You put yourself in the street on a day-to-day basis and say is this actually going to work? Mm. Or has this parcel of land been exploited? Or is this design the best approach to this? And in a way, doing expert evidence work really forces that. Each and every project you have to do that. And I, I think it is important as a way of breaking down what might be your natural reaction.
1: I suppose being tested at um, for in our interstate and overseas Listeners, um, Sophie appears quite a lot uh, as an expert evident uh, witness before the VCAT, the tribunal, and where she can be cross-examined on her professional evidence. And I always found the tribunal a force for discipline, uh, mental, uh, you know, intellectual discipline. Do you find that when you're in the hot seat getting, you know, people want to get gotcha moments at you and teasing our ideas. How does that, what does that do with your professional capabilities, do you think?
2: Um, I think that's a really good question because some, I do ask myself quite regularly, when I, particularly when I've just come out of a hearing, I've been cross-examined for sometimes an entire day and I'm tired mm-hmm. and a bit shaky. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to do this? <laughs> um Very recently I've had some tribunal members ask me broader questions. Questions like, you know, there's no height control here. How, How do we come up with the appropriate height? Or they might say, there's a DDO here, a particular height control provision in the planning scheme, that says 10 metres and you're advocating for 20 metres. Why should we be thinking that? So they're actually going beyond the small question and asking my opinion as, a, as a, uh, well, I'm sitting in the seat as an expert. W- why should the planning system consider that? And I've really enjoyed that challenge because I think that's, that's what the planning witness should be asked their opinion of, you know, looking, stepping back, looking at it from that bigger perspective. And I would like to think that VCAT did more of that, tried to draw out of the witnesses more of the um, professional opinion about planning in a broader sense. Um, For many projects, however, it's not about that. It's about the very small detail and about the gotcha moment of catching someone out that they misread a level and then all of a sudden they can't be trusted and that's the end of the story. In my view, that's a lost opportunity of what you could get out of an expert witness.
0: Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website.
1: Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
0: Moving on just a little bit into well-being. how do we, I guess, are there indices that we as planners perhaps aren't considering when we think about wellbeing that we should be considering in our decision-making?
2: Wellbeing in the sense of what makes a good urban environment. And
1: and what considerations don't we pay enough attention to in sort of working through that sort of wellbeing indice of cities and sub-areas?
2: I often think that in established areas not enough is not enough attention is given to public open space and what it can do for the community and how it can be improved enlarged added to modified and in my view public open space is a way that people can come together and be a community through sporting groups through mothers groups every age group and a great um, opportunity for interaction and I drive around um, you know suburban Melbourne and even inner Melbourne and I look at these sad ovals that or whatever it might be and I just feel like not enough attention is given to the well-being that can come from really good public open space planning it's like it's been built 50 years ago so it's there so we'll mow it We might paint the play equipment once a year and that's the end of it and what contribution does it make well in my view it makes an enormous contribution and it's often not part of that well-being or that that environment tick um i'd love to see more done in established areas in that regard because i think it could draw people out of their private spaces bring them into a city and actually bring it to life again It's interesting,
0: isn't it, that you think about the Greenfield areas and that is one area that the Greenfields, I think, does relatively well. Um, There is a lot of money and a lot of investment put into the open space because it is seen as that community heart. Yes. So it's interesting that we don't pay the same attention to um, our our existing areas. Yes. So it's a very interesting point.
1: But the Victorians got it right. You think about the most gorgeous parks in Melbourne, they were all done by the Victorians. I think, yes. you know, and you know, it's not hard to follow their example, but we, for whatever reason, we, we just don't have that civic sense. No, it's the,
2: that's what I mean. It's the community and civic sense that that open space can bring. And if you look at European cities, high density environment, apartments are significantly smaller than what we have. And people don't have balconies that are 2.4 metres wide and X number of square metres. They come out of their apartments. They go to the park, which are usually much bigger than what we might have. And they use that space and they walk their dog and they gather as groups. And that civic um, purpose to that space does fantastic things for wellbeing.
1: The public domain spaces in a lot of Australian cities are very ordinary and they haven't improved
2: it's that functional. ongoing investment that yeah, hasn't but, but yeah. there's not
1: that attention to the footpaths the spaces that people move around a lot they're just they're very functional spaces yeah, rather than desirable spaces yeah
0: i think also sometimes the climatic conditions aren't really considered as well it's um, you know if you go out into regional victoria you don't want to be hanging out in an open space that doesn't have any
1: shade any shade yes. mm.
0: I mean, someone like me will be burnt in (laughs) two (laughs) minutes and that's very unpleasant. So it's almost – it's designed around being, you know, seen as sometimes an attractive place, not always because I know you probably have a different view on that, but it hasn't actually designed for the functional aspect rather than the desirable aspect. It's an interesting one. Um, Just moving on to technology, we like to talk – um, we'll ask most of our guests about technology and how technology affects their day-to-day work. Um, I think Pete's put here, we now have more computing power than NASA. I've never thought about it like no, that. Uh,
1: no, the, the <laughs> during,
0: sorry, during the last moon travel. <laughs> no, the,
1: because the 50th anniversary of the moon mm. was, was recently. Because yes. Because the, 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 com- the spaceship that went to the moon had, in your phone you've got more computing power yeah. than the whole of NASA had at that time the whole of NASA. Needed some context behind that. (laughs) Sorry, Jess, back to you.
0: Um, And we we also obviously have a huge... um, We have huge access to different information and um, different data. How do you see technology being made better to work for our urban environments? Mm.
2: Um, I would say what we don't make the most of... we, We use it a lot, but I think it has such great potential to be used more and that is 3D visualisation of our cities and I'm a huge believer of of using it to demonstrate what you will actually see, not what everyone thinks you might see Mm. and is all panicked about but in actual test it. We have the technology, let's use it.
0: Well, you can essentially walk down a street, can't you, and see what the building will look like, how it will feel, in the streetscape. Exactly. So we really have no excuse in that space.
2: And beyond static images. Mm. So for a long time we've used 3D images to demonstrate what you will actually see Mm. in a photorealistic manner um, or realistic manner. I I think we need to go much further than that. And. Very recently I've been involved in projects where it has been used differently, always to demonstrate what the reality will be, not what the perception is. And whether that be um, impacts of shadows mm. or view lines from really important public spaces like Yarra River and things like that, and all of a sudden everyone says, oh, oh I thought you'd see it more or mm. I thought it would do more.
0: There's still a lot of suspicion around it, though, isn't there? Yes. Like, well, yes. No, that's not accurate. You've you've um, reduced the bulk of that
2: because that yes. suits you. So it's a computer model; can't be real. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, and I'd love if we could get past that, mm. uh, but I, I just feel that there is such a great opportunity to use that part of our mm. technology and and how far we've come. Well, you
1: think of the gaming world. Yes. Not that I game, but. the uh,
2: The virtual reality but that's right (laughs) with the big goggles on i'm
1: not a gamer but but i have seen it yes and uh it's incredible that world that they yes so why don't we have that you know uh anyway moving on great opportunity Um, much of planning regulation is about the minutiae right? The design of windows and doors and, you know, the, the pitch of the roof and, you know, and allocating resources to these type of attentions, items, diverts attention away from the broader impact. Discuss. What do you think, Sophie?
2: I think that um, a better apartment design guideline was necessary for a, a whole host of reasons i'm not sure that the vast majority of what has come out of that document should sit in the planning process the guidelines are really important for architects and designers um, but what i have found is that i end up spending so much time looking at the width of a bathroom door and ticking off every apartment meeting that Provision and have they got the right cubic meterage in their kitchen as well as their storage cage in the basement and that's not what this is about.
1: The the, the reason I ask that Sophie is because a lot of attention is caught, uh, there's a lot of trip wires for having to get planning permission and but when a 25 storey building goes up it's given a bit of attention but nothing like Mm. the that what it deserves so planning resources are spent you know there's a new door for a factory there's this there's a new you know changing the car park or changing the use or this or changing seating numbers yes whereas the big things that get done the planners there are relatively stretched yes and you don't get the scrutiny of the things that really define a city
2: yes i would agree with you And, and and i say that as somebody who does spend a lot of their day on the Minutia of Mm. of Mm. the design process and the ticking and the crossing and I'm not suggesting that some of that isn't important Um, but my concern is that that is influencing key decisions more than it should Um, it, it is important that it's done the right person to do it might not necessarily be the planner but it is important that it's part of the assessment but it really shouldn't be the reason that a permit gets issued or not.
0: Society has probably changed quite a bit since you first started in planning. Um, How old do you really <laughs> think I am? <laughs> 28. Has, has the planning practice itself evolved at a similar pace, do you think?
2: Hmm. But look, in some respects I'd say yes. In, in some ways I'd say planners and people I've worked with, is when I say planners, people mm. I've worked with, Uh, have always been very forward thinking and uh, embraced opportunity to, you know, have our cities evolve more and develop more. I think that the the practice of assessment of applications has become more and more rigid and harder and harder to try and think forward. Um, The area that I think hasn't evolved with time has perhaps been the way our community has embraced change mm. uh, and that's always something that we are working, feels like working against. Mm. Um, I think of a lot of people, professionals I've worked with over the, the years that I would consider had a real vision and and really wanted to, to do something positive with our urban spaces and have always been sort of held back. Um, that's what I think is perhaps hasn't evolved with time. Mm, mm, definitely. Pete, what about you? Uh,
1: well, uh, you <laughs> know... What's 20, changed Are you 28? I, I, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm a lot smarter than I was when I was 28 but uh, and not as stupid. But um, uh, I, th- I think, Sophie, that planning hasn't really changed much at all. Um, and uh, to me, it's like... Uh, you know the the old and the New Testament. We, we still got things. Things have not changed much in terms of the policy front, or or embracing, uh, really embracing innovation. I, I think it's very slow. What about the
0: things that are now in, I guess, the toolkit of things that you need to consider as a planner? So ESD, for example, that wouldn't have been something that you considered when you were first no a no but um, but a,
1: a lot of that is just cosmetic, yeah. you know. And I, look, and you I'm, I'm talking about land use activities, how people live, where they live. It's it, the planning policies has not changed. Mm. I, and, I don't and disagree t- with mm. you
2: in that regard. Yeah. I think when that. Um, I think that policy or perhaps the fundamentals of of town planning haven't really changed i do think though that um, planning professionals perhaps have have continued to think forward and maybe the planning system Mm. hasn't moved the two separate things so i think Mm. if we think of the word practice not in terms of practitioners but in terms of process i probably agree with you. Uh, and and I think, uh,
1: and, and on Sophia, you know, when I started planning oh, several decades ago, the <laughs> economy—don't laugh, Jess. <laughs> the the econ- it'll happen to you too. And the you know the economy, the economic structure of the country and of, of like like countries in the Western world was very very different. Yes. Fa- the household formation was very very yes. different but all those policies are still stuck in those areas and they haven't embraced a lot of the you know the uber type yes. revolution in our economy so
2: one area that i don't think planning has kept up to speed with is how mobile people are mobile in their work where they live how happy they are to travel and move around i don't think our planning systems have accepted that
1: I, I think for all the lip service to diversity we don't have a diverse planning system
2: uh, diverse I think we have some in some areas some great diversity to our urban environment but I don't think that our planning system necessarily promotes that to the extent that our vision allows us to to think about a future and and that's not um, I don't think that the, that the system allows for that to progress. So I think in that regard, I'd agree with you. It hasn't, it hasn't kept up.
1: Now, I'm gonna go completely off track here, Jess. But yeah, oh, no. <laughs> but, but, so uh, Sophie, in the last 25 years, every day, 130,000 people have escaped extreme poverty. Every single day, 130,000 people have escaped extreme poverty. We should look at why those things have happened and sort of latch on to some of those positive positive things that are happening in the world and maybe our problems don't look so bad or or, or not so hard to fix. I know it's out there sort of thing.
2: I'm I'm interested in where those people might be located.
1: The yeah, urbanization is a big part of getting out of extreme poverty.
2: And what types of cities uh, they they were able to get what was it about the city unit or or city space and systems
1: economic advantage uh you know networks communities a lot of the the shanties where they're living are are, are atrocious from our point of view yes but where they were living was much worse yes so that's one hundred and thirty thousand a day
2: and i out of
1: extreme poverty it's incredible statistic
2: what i find really interesting is when um, i mean everybody finds travel interesting um as a planner, I'm always fascinated to see the different living environments around the world and how that differs from where we are. And I'm always fascinated to see the way some Western cities uh, have embraced housing affordability and addressed housing affordability compared to Melbourne, specifically where I live and work. And I wonder if maybe the advancement in some cities to addressing homelessness and, and um, affordable housing or the provision of affordable housing is so far advanced to what we've been able to get our head around in Melbourne and achieve in Melbourne are some of those 130,000 people um, a day benefiting from that.
1: Mm-hmm. No. Now well, back to the, the, <laughs> the schedule, sorry <laughs> Jess.
0: Um, I was gonna ask, if you had six months away from your normal work to undertake a pure research project, what would it be on?
2: If it was purely research, I'd probably be really interested in how we can bring uh, green space into our city and our urban environment. And I've, I've always had a real passion for using dead space, for some sort of recreation activity or, mm-hmm. or purpose. So green roofs. Green roofs sort of is a number yeah. one area of interest and, and London in particular has an amazing program mm-hmm. of establishing green, green roofs across the city and having open days where people can just go and enjoy all of these amazing spaces on the roof that's dead space. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, had a short break in Singapore Um, which was meant to be, you know, holiday purpose, but I spent my whole time being fascinated and interested and wandering around trying to look at how they managed to build green space... What they
1: do, all listeners should go to Singapore. That is one of the most dynamic urban development places and how well they do things.
2: It feels very green, and yet it is such a built-up city so small in terms of space and they manage to bring the, envi- the natural environment into their buildings into their streets into their everywhere uh, and i'd love to do a research project on how that benefits people's enjoyment of their city how it benefits their well-being if they're a resident of that city um, how they can uh, at least have that breathing space that we really lack in our urban environments. Um, love to do a research project in that.
1: Sophie, how do you ref- refresh and relax?
2: Mm, very seldom do I find myself relaxing. <laughs> 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 uh, I love um, sewing and my mother was a dressmaker and so I love dressmaking and sewing and anything to do with material and craft and if i can do that if i have the time and the space
1: you get lost in that
2: i get lost in that i run the mother's day stall at my daughter's school and i go nuts it's my i know i said at the very beginning i'm not creative if i have any sort of creative outlet it's that Um, and i just i love doing something very tactile because I spend my whole day tapping away at a keyboard or taking photographs on site or going to meetings. I love doing the complete opposite.
0: And it's very easy to disconnect from the world doing those things as well, isn't it?
2: Nobody has a go at you over it. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Now, Jess, what have you been... What's caught your eye... Well, Since our last
0: talking of uh, creativity, I would say I also probably lack a bit of creativity. I also love sewing though, ah. so that's my creative outlet. Um, but my my um, my talents do not lie in technology <laughs> and creative technology. So using um, InDesign and those sorts of programs, I it's just not something I've ever needed to do and not something that I'm very good at. So I've discovered this app called Canva, which is a great, um, I don't even know how to describe it, sort of a repository of Jess? C-A-N-V-A. I actually listened to a podcast about it, which is how I got onto it. Um, but it's sort of a almost a, a library of templates that you can edit and use to um, create you know, social media stories or posts, websites, logos, anything It's incredible. It's about $15 a month. I'm just doing a free trial at the moment, but it's amazing. So I highly recommend that. What about you, Pete?
1: Well, I've been to the southern states in America, Jess, as you know. And uh, to all our American listeners out there, I, I really do adore your country. Super friendly, and they do some really smart things. But when I was there, I was catching up with a friend, um, Frank Brazil, and he was telling me that companies, there's certain funeral companies in the States that now create digital memories for people. There seems
0: to be this common theme in your recommendations mortality. <laughs> it's
1: very important to consider morta- your mortality Jess. I know you're a long way from it, but <laughs> but this this comp- these companies create digital memories. They create movies, they create things. So this is uh, creating a less need for plots. So I think we need to think about the the the, the death industry, but uh, that that People are going to live in the virtual world and people don't typically go and visit cemeteries. Some people do, but not a lot of people do. So that's, that's the thing. And when I was in the States, I liked the city so much that I went into the planning department listeners and they were, didn't, treat, didn't throw me out. And uh, we, we set up an interview with the manager at Greenville coming up. So that'll be coming up soon. So we've got to get the technology right to do that. But they're fantastic people over there in South Carolina. I, I love them all. So, uh, uh, and listeners, I do urge you to listen to the Urban Broadcast Collective, which we are part of, and um, thank you for listening to our podcast in your busy lives. Thanks again, Sophie, and thanks again, Jess.
2: Thank you. Thank you.